uh, for this part of Joseph's story. Uh, the difficulty is, and I wrestled with this earlier this week, is chapter 43 is a pretty long chapter. There's a lot going on in there. But it's only half the story because chapter 44 is the other half of this. And where we're at in Joseph's story is he has been sold into slavery. He has gone into prison. He's now been exalted to the right, to the second person in all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And now what he said was going to happen has happened. Seven years of abundance. Boy, the land just produced tons of food and he salted away. He, he put it aside. He kept stirring it up. And now the famine begins. And so what happens in this section and what Moses really focuses on is not so much the famine and what's going on in the world. It's his relationship to his brothers. And, and so chapter 43 is their first appearance before Joseph. Chapter 44 is their second. And so I really wrestled, should we do that all as one big chunk? But um, I, I decided that this story can stand on its own. There's something that God has got to say to us in this portion of the story. And I think the first part of uh, 42 and 43, I always get numbers wrong. Um, it's part of my math education as I'm bad with numbers. Go figure that one out. Um, but the Lord will provide, right? Amen? Amen. See how I did that? Um, so um, uh, what's, what's happening in chapter 42 with this initial encounter between Joseph and his brothers um, what we're going to see is there's really two questions. What is Joseph up to? But the bigger question is always, what is God up to? And, and we're going to look at what he's doing with his brothers to understand what's happening. Um, where I ended last week was not the beginning of chapter 42, but at uh, 41, uh, I ended that section on, on verse 45. So starting in, in 41, verse 46, it just seemed like a natural break because 46 says Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It just seemed like a marker, like, like um, Moses is saying, okay, here's a new, new story for us. Think about that for a second. Joseph was 30 years old when he started in Pharaoh's service. So what that means is when he was 17, he was sold into slavery. He's now 30. So it's been 13 years. But that was when he got into jo uh, Pharaoh's service. We've already seen there's seven years of famine or seven years of, of produce. So now Joseph is 37 at the end of that seven years when the land is really producing. So that means it's been 20 years since he's been with his family. He was 17 when, he's, when he was sold, and now he's at least 37. It's been 20 years. And it's probably later because the brothers don't just go, oh, it's, you know, we had a bad year, so now we'll go down to Egypt. They had to get to the point where they expended their stores, and now they're heading to Egypt to get food as well. So it's probably 37, 38, 39, somewhere in that range that he is. But it's been 20 years. Just a couple of chapters went pretty quick, but it's 20 years that he's... So one of the questions that might come up here is, what is his spiritual condition? How is Joseph doing being isolated from the covenant family that God created? And the great news is that we have hope for him because what happens is after those seven years of plenty where he saves up the food, um, before the salmon came, before the salmon, <laughs> I, I, maybe I need lunch <laughs> before I start preaching. Before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. So 
this is what I was saying at the end of the sermon last week is Joseph is very Egyptian at this point. He's got an Egyptian name. He's got an Egyptian wife. He dresses like Egyptians. And the joke last week was he walks like an Egyptian. I, I bypassed it last week. I figure I better just get it out. Now you can have your giggle and we'll get on with it. <laughs> so he has a wife and he has children. What does he do with his children? Look at what he does. Look at how he names his children. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's, and all my father's house. That is, Manasseh is not an Egyptian name. It's Hebrew. It means to make to forget. He named his children Hebrew names in the middle of an Egyptian culture. And the same thing with his other child. Um, he says, the name of the second was called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So what, we're, what Moses puts right up front for us is this reminder, Joseph is still God's man. He, he hasn't assimilated, he hasn't disappeared into Egyptian culture. He is still a Hebrew. He still knows who he is, even though it's been about 20 years since he's been with his family. So then the end of chapter 41, the seven years of plenty occurred, they stored up, then the famine started. And so verse 56, so the famine had spread over all the land. Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. So just as Joseph had said, just as God had given Pharaoh those dreams, Joseph accurately interpreted them, the famine has come. And it's bad. It's like it has never been seen in Egypt before. So now we, we, we finish that. We get the, the stages set. And the camera swings over to the promised land. When Jacob heard that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at each other? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us uh, that we may live and not die. So the, the, the camera swings back to the promised land. We're back to the covenant family. They're affected by this as well. God didn't spare them. The, the famine didn't somehow skip where they lived. It's hit them. And so it's probably been a few years, as I said, because they had stores, they had food, the, the, the sheep were fed, well fed probably during this time of, of great produce. And so now things are beginning to get bad. And Joseph tells his sons, go get us some food, go shopping, hit the grocery store, go down to Egypt. Um, so I'm gonna just try to summarize this because it's a long story. And I think the part that Jim read really hit at what was going on. Uh, but there's a couple of things that I think we need to pull our, call, call our attention to. So this, the famine is spread. Uh, Joseph's brothers go down to buy e uh, grain in Egypt. And so Jacob, it says specifically, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with, with his brothers, for he feared harm might come to him. So Jacob has already had a bad experience. He sent his, one of his favorite sons out, and he never came back. So now with Benjamin, he's not letting go. He, he, is, he is too frail, he's too fragile to endure the emotional hardship of risking this son again. And so he refuses to send him. He sends the, the older 10 and they go. So what happens is they come down to Egypt and they are introduced 
to Joseph. They, they come before Joseph because he's the one that's going to determine, are you going to get to buy food or not? So in verse 6, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound familiar? That was what they got really mad about is you, what, you think we're going to bow down to you? And, and remember that first dream was the sheaths, the, the, the harvest that came in, ours will bow down to you. And what are they there for? Grain. They're there for food. And they're bowing down to Joseph. So now we get the other set of dreams coming true as well. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. Moses says that twice. He wants to make it abundantly clear. This is not a mistake. Joseph is intentional in what he's doing. He recognized them, and yet he's going to speak this way to them. He recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. He is shaven. He's older, right? He was, he was 17. Now he's in his 30s. He's shaven. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian to them, so they don't recognize him. It it's, it's, makes sense. It's, it's nat natural that they wouldn't recognize him. Verse 9, and I think this is key. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Uh, I've been stringing that out through this whole sermon series. I said, what was Joseph hanging on to while he was in Egypt? He was hanging on to those dreams, those messages that God gave him. God was telling him, Joseph, I'm going to use you. You are going to be a blessing to your brothers, to your family. You're going to, you're going to rule over them in a, in a positive way. And here's the proof. Joseph remembers the dreams. As he looks at his brothers standing before him, he remembers God saying, you will rule over them. Grain, produce, produce, food will be involved in this ruling, and you, you'll rule over them. And, and so that's what he's hoping for. That's that message from God that he hung on to. But he said to them, you're spies. You've come to, to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants came to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. How do you assess that statement? Have they ever been spies? No, probably not. Are they honest men? <laughs> not so much. And they're telling Joseph this. They're looking their brother in the face and saying, we're honest men. And he's thinking, yeah, know that. I know this story. So skipping ahead a little bit, um, they say again, we're your servants. We're 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is, is this day with our father, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, as I said to you, you're spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. So he locked his brothers up. This kind of begins to raise that question, Joseph, what are you up to? It, it could, could be, right? It could possibly be. He's just going, I'm getting them back, man. They're going to squirm. I'm going to take care of these guys. Look, they, they hosed me. I'm hosing them back. I'll, I'll save my family, but they're going to pay for it first. I really, I, that's a possible explanation. I really don't think that's what's going on, and here's why. Moses has dropped the hint. He remembered the dreams. What he's thinking is, I'm to rule over these men, not, boy, am I going to put the screws to them. 
He, he's thinking, I am to rule over them. And then the other hint comes a little later on. Uh, they didn't know that Joseph understood them. They're talking to each other. They're saying, boy, something bad's coming because what we did to Joseph. And so they're standing there yammering back and forth in Hebrew, thinking this Egyptian doesn't understand them, but he does. And so in verse 23, it says, they didn't know Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. So Joseph's attitude towards his brothers is not, gosh, I hate your guts and I'm going to really put it to you. It is brokenhearted sorrow over his brothers. He hears them lamenting of their sin and it breaks his heart. So he turns aside and he weeps. He's, I got a little weepy when we sang that first song. I kind of, you know, wet eyes. That's how Joseph felt. He was stirred emotionally at what's going on with his brothers. And, and it'll come up again. He'll do it again. So what I think Joseph is up to here is not harming his brothers, but he's saying, if I'm successfully to rule over these men, if I am to lead this family and, and, and I'm to do it well, I have to understand who I'm leading. It's been a long time since I've seen these men. What has God been doing in their life? How has he been working in them? How have they grown? How have they changed? Or have they changed? Maybe I need to rule over them really roughly because they're not moving. And so that's what he's up to is Joseph is saying, I need to make an honest assessment of their, their situation so that I can rule them well. I think that's what his, his heart is. I think that's what his, his desire is, is to be a good ruler. Um, so we'll see this again next week as well, because the, the, like I said, we're only doing half the story and I kind of have to chomp at the bit to draw myself back and go, don't, don't preach next week's sermon. But this is, Joseph's, uh, this is Joseph's purpose, is he's, he's looking to the betterment of his family, not the, not the destruction of them. And so one of the things is, you ever read leadership books or church leadership books or spiritual leadership books? Um, always take them with a grain of salt. I, I, I get really frustrated when I see advertisements about how to preach to your church. I'm like, <laughs> you don't know my church. How can you tell me how to preach to my church? You don't know my people. You don't know what our situation is. Um, the same thing with a lot of leadership books is there, here's, here's what you have to do to be a good, strong leader. It's like, how can you tell me that? You're not in my situation. You don't, know my, you don't know me, my heart. You don't know the people I'm leading. That's exactly what Joseph is doing is he's assessing the situation before he steps in and takes control. He's trying to be the good leader. He's trying to be the good ruler in this instance. And he's done that in Egypt. He's been, there's no complaints from anybody at this point about what he's done. He saved Egypt by taxing them at 20% during the, the feast, during the, the great you know, burgeoning uh, crops that were coming in, now he's able to save them. So he's a solid leader. He's a man who cares. He's involved and engaged with his people. And the same thing now with his family is he is not going to destroy his family, nor will he rule over them uninformed. He's testing. And that's the word that, that comes up a couple of times in this, is he's testing them. He's saying, where are you at and what's going on? So then what comes up next is uh, he, he throws them in jail, as any good brother would do, right? Brothers do that, you know, throw each other in jail. Um, so he throws them in jail for three days. And then when they come out, he says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If, you're an on if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go to carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother back to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. 
So Joseph says, here's, I got a better deal for you. Originally, I was going to let one of you go. I got a better deal. I'm going to hang on to one of you, and I want you, the rest of you, the other nine, to go pick up your younger brother and bring him back to me so that I can verify your story, that you're not telling me a lie. And that's the deal he cuts with them. Now, here's the, the really cool thing that, that Joseph has just done. He's put them in the same situation they were in with him. Somebody's in prison, and you're going to go off, and you're going to get your younger brother. How will you take care of that younger brother? How did you take care of me? Will you take care of Benjamin any different? Are you still filled with petty jealousy? Or will you see that there is a benefit to taking care of him? So he, he's, he's putting them through very similar paces. And, and it gets worse. It gets even more developed as we go. So listen, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul and we begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes this reckoning for his blood. So this is how the brothers were interpreting it. They're looking at Joseph as he is, a, he is not a benevolent ruler. He's trying to destroy us. And this is our fault because we sinned and we, should have, we shouldn't have done that. We brought this on ourselves. So that's how they interpret it. So then Joseph, that part I just read about, Joseph hears them. He understands them because he speaks Hebrew and they don't know it. And he cries. He's broken hearted over his brothers. He's beginning to see there seems to be some repentance going on here. There's a good indication that these men are different, that God has been working in them for a long time. And so what, they, what he does is he fills their bags with grain and he replaces every man's money in the sack and he puts them on the road. So they leave. Simeon is in jail. The other nine are heading back to the promised land. They stop at a place overnight, uh, the, the camp overnight. And when, when one of the brothers pulls out some grain for the donkeys to feed the, the animals, he opens the bag and, oh, my gosh, the money's there. Well, Joseph, we, we heard what Jim read. Joseph put all their money back in the sacks. All of their sacks have money in it. And this is not good news to them. This is terrifying. So isn't this exactly what happened to Joseph? Well, we could kill the guy, kid, but then we wouldn't get any money out of it. So how about if we sell him so we get some money? So now he has put them in the situation where they have to care for the youngest again, and he's put money in their hands. What he's saying to them is, how will you respond? How will you behave? Now, we know this terrifies them. This is, this is the scariest thing they can think of. And here's the thing, is they're feeling guilt at what they've done. They understand what they did to Joseph was wrong. And when you live with a guilt weighing on your shoulders for a long period of time, it affects how you see everything. Instead of looking at the situation and going, wow, not only do we have food for our families, God has also restored our money. That's a blessing. What they say is we have food for our families and we have the money restored. And this is terrible. This is, this is God's judgment falling on us. How could he do this to us? How could he do this to us? Guilt twists that whole thing upside down. God's blessing to them is now seen as an additional burden. This is the means God's going to use to get us. He's going to provide. He's going to be good to us. And then he's going to snatch it away and we're going to be in big trouble. That, that's how a guilty conscience can distort our understanding of reality. 
And, and this is something that these men need to get over. They need to begin to see how God is actually working in their lives. And that leads to the second part is what is God up to here? What is God trying to accomplish? He's, he's accomplishing a purpose through Joseph. Joseph is in concert with God and working in these men's life. He is the instrument that God has chosen to use to work in these men's lives. But what is God doing here? He's, he's leading them. He's wanting them to get to the point of repentance where they will say, we're not honest men. We lied to you. We, we're not honest men. We're not spies, but we're not honest men because look what we did to our brother. He, God's not happy to leave us sitting in our sins. These are his people. And, and that guilt that they are bearing on their shoulders, they weren't built to bear. It wasn't for them to bear. God would rather them confess their sin and make amends and walk with him in delight so that when he restores their money in the food that they're taking home, they would celebrate rather than be terrified. What a horrible position to be in to say, God is blessing me and it's scaring me to death. What's he going to do to me? So that's why that prayer time this morning was so wonderful as we're all talking about how God is providing. And there was no fear. There was no terror and, oh my gosh, he's given us good things and that means he's going to squash us. That's where these men are. So here's, here's where we need to go with this is, what is God do, doing with us? How is God working in our lives? What, what's happening here? Well, sometimes we have unconfessed sin. We'll have sin that we just hang on to, that we coddle, maybe sin that we are aware of and we try to hide and pretend it isn't there. Something, there's, there's sin that can reside in our lives and how is God gonna react to that? What's he gonna do about that? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a really solid answer. Starting in, in chapter 12, beginning in verse five, the author of Hebrews says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. So this is the message that the brothers needed to hear. God's not zapping you. God is treating you as sons. This is how God reacts with his people as he treats them as sons. That's, that's tremendous. That's a huge blessing. And here's why. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you have a sin in your life that you're coddling, a sin that you continue to go back to over and over again, and God never deals with it, never challenges you. I'm not saying you have instant victory over it or that you have victory in a pretty short period of time, but if you have never felt troubled by that, if you've never heard God's voice saying, I am displeased, have never felt chastisement, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you're an illegitimate child and not a son. If that sin has never troubled you, you are not a legitimate son of the father. So when we look at some of the goofy things that happen within the church in the name of evangelicalism, and, and we hear about people doing terrible things and getting away with it, one of the ways we can pray is, Lord, please, don't let this person be an illegitimate son. 
chasten them, correct them, draw them back, discipline them as you would one of your own children. Sometimes some of the things you see in the news about people who in the name of Christ do some really horrible things, you got to wonder, are they really children? Or is God just going to let them go and let them go and let them go and build up wrath for that day? It's a scary thing. But the promise to us is his people, he's saying, he's not going to do that. He's going to discipline us. He says, and besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in holiness. So the author of Hebrews points us back and he goes, didn't your father work in your life? Didn't, didn't your father train you and discipline you? And he did it imperfectly. He did it poorly. He may have done it for selfish reasons. I just don't want to be bothered, so stop it. Your father's not perfect, but he says, look to your earthly father. They disciplined you, they trained you, and you respected them. Now look to your heavenly father. How much greater is he? He's not interested in just disciplining you so you don't interrupt him during the football game. He's disciplining you for good. He loves you. He delights in you. He wants you to grow. And so that's that picture that the, the author of Hebrews points is when he points us to fathers, he knows there are bad fathers out there. But he's using that as an example saying, even with a bad father, you get what he's up to. How much more your heavenly father? And so he says, he sums it up. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it yields, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is hard. It's supposed to be hard. When I was in high school, in junior high school, teachers carried paddles, big, long pieces of wood. And if you got out of line, they'd whack you on the bottom. And you wouldn't sit still for a while because it hurt. It, it was supposed to be painful. That was the point of it, is it was supposed to hurt. When you're a child and you do something wrong, your parents may slap your hand. That hurts. Your hand turns red. And it's supposed to hurt. That's what discipline is supposed to be like. And the same thing is true with our Heavenly Father. He may take us to very uncomfortable places. He may take us to very difficult places. He may take us to places that hurt deeply. But what we have to remember is, He's our Father who loves us. Sometimes we begin to think of God as some impersonal force some cosmic force in the universe like gravity or electromagnetism. He just happens. That's how the brothers are thinking of him, is he's just some cosmic force for good, and we've done bad, and so this cosmic force is coming against us, and he's going to destroy us. Does lightning give a rip how hard it hits you? It doesn't care. It just hits you. What we need to remember here, and the picture that the, the author is painting for us is God is a father. God is a person. He has a personality. He is not a cosmic force. He is a loving, caring personality who wants what's best for you. And so, yes, he will take you through difficult times. He will take you to places where it hurts deeply. 
but he's not doing it to destroy you. This is a loving father who says, let me shape you. Let me mold you. Let me lead you to a place where the pain goes away and you're filled with joy. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It just does. So that's the picture that we have here is these men are looking at the situation and going, God's out to destroy us. When they don't recognize, God is out to bless them. He is out to fill them up, to draw them into a people who will be for his own name. That's what his promise has been from the very beginning. I will have a people for myself, and I will form them, and I will shape them, and they will love me, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so as we look to the end of the book, we see this glorious time when sin and death and hell are put away, and we stand with our God, and we delight in him. And, and the, the intermediate time is difficult. It's full of discipline. It's full of trials. Sins that we thought we had dealt with come back up again and again and again. And God's not content to just go, oh, it's no big deal. So how do you deal with then with that sin that keeps troubling you? With those difficulties? How is it that at this point that God is going to deal with the brothers? They actually sinned against their brother. They sinned against their father. They lied. They deceived. They sold somebody into slavery. They treated them as if they were dead. They're continuing in 20 years to perpetuate the lie. Yeah, poor Joseph. Boy, he's gone. Lion got him. Terrible. So how does God deal with that sin? Does he just turn a blind eye? Well, again, the author of Hebrews, I think, is really helpful in this. In chapter 10, he talks about Jesus being our high priest, being the better sacrifice. And he compares and contrasts the sacrifice of the Old Covenant with the sacrifice of the New Covenant. And his point is, with the sacrifice of the Old Covenant, you come back every single time. You keep coming back to sin, to sin, to sin, and sacrifice, and sacrifice, and sacrifice. And he says the reason that couldn't take away sin is it only dealt with the one. It brought forgiveness for the one sin, and so you kept coming back. And so the way he describes it in chapter 10 is he says it was a constant reminder of sin. The slaughter of those, of those sheep and those lambs and those goats in the temple was not pretty. It was fairly disgusting as the blood poured out repeatedly over and over and over again. And what God is saying is sin is this bad. So that's the Old Covenant. And listen to how the author of Hebrews talks about the New Covenant, the covenant that we're in with Jesus Christ. I'm going to just pick a handful of verses and kind of skip through because I just want to draw this picture together. He says, But when Christ offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus comes and he offers one sacrifice for all of our sins. He says, Here it is, Father. And he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because he was done. There would be no reminder of sin day after day, year after year. This would be the worst sin possible, killing the Son of God. But it would undo all other sin. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you believe that? By one sacrifice, he has sanctified those who are, or he has um, perfected, 
those who are being sanctified for all time. Jesus, one sacrifice for all time. So what are you going to contribute? What are you going to offer in this that Jesus hasn't done? He offered one sacrifice to perfect you for all time. And therefore, brothers, the author goes on, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So this is the picture the author of Hebrew paints, the author of Hebrews paints for us, is we have confidence. We don't have hope. We don't think we might be zapped if we do it wrong. We have confidence to enter the holy places, to go into the presence of God, to the throne room of God, to the very center of, of holiness. We, wretched sinners that we are, have confidence to just walk in. Why? Because our hearts have been filled with faith, sprinkled clear, clean from evil by one sacrifice. So this is how we understand this, is God is disciplining us. He's not zapping us. God is disciplining us. He's not punishing us for our sins. If you think, well, you know, I, 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 the cashier gave me too much money and I didn't return it, and now God's, you know, I got a flat tire because God's got me. What does that say about Jesus' sacrifice, the one sacrifice? It's saying God did, God's rejecting it, and he's going to zap you. He's going to get you some other way. He's going to come around and get you. So then how do we understand, how do we interpret when difficulties come in our life? Because guess what? Difficulties come in our lives. Are the brothers actually facing a famine? Is their family threatened? Absolutely. This is not an illusion. This is not, you know, a mistake. The problem here is they're misinterpreting it. They're reading it as God is going to destroy us. And they don't see the bigger picture that God, through Joseph, is actually redeeming you. He's actually turning your hearts. He's bringing you to himself. So then how do we do that? How is it that when difficulty comes into our life, how do we interpret it? Um, I want to read a little section from an article by D.A. Carson at the Gospel Coalition website. It's how do we know if God is disciplining us? The article overall was okay. Um, uh, I think it got a little wordy in places and a little confused, but in the end, I think he summed it up beautifully. Here's what he says. This is his advice to how do we know if God is disciplining us? He says, when we face suffering of any kind, we should use the occasion for self-examination. God may be speaking to us in the language of a wise heavenly father who chastens those who he loves. Such chastening may be God's response to specific sins in our lives. It may be a more general way of toughening us up to live in this broken world so we stop thinking that God owes us a good health or that by clean living and organic food, we guarantee our long and robust life. Or it may be that God has a bet going on with Satan himself. Think of Job. So our self-examination ought to be honest and any repentance should be forthright. But we should not whip ourselves into thinking that the crippling accident we just endured was a function of our sin. Even if it were, the remedy is always the same. 
flee to the cross and trust our good and gracious and holy God. And it's not inconceivable that we may conclude with Job that this suffering cannot be God's punishment for specific sins in our lives. So this is the, the wisdom here is the brothers are looking at what's happening to them and they're thinking it's specifically God's punishment on them for their sins. In reality, God is doing a thousand different things in their lives. But what he's doing right now is not punishing them for their sins. Because how does the story end? They're restored to their brother. They're given food. They're brought into Egypt. They're fed. They're provided for. They're cared for. If God was going to zap them for their sins, they'd have dropped dead right then. But it's hard to tell in the moment, isn't it? I think, that, I think if we're honest and we stand in Simeon's shoes and Judah's shoes, in Levi's shoes at this moment, and we say, you know what? I'm not positive what's going on here. I don't know exactly what's happening. That's Dr. Carson's response. His advice for us is do some self-examination. You may have a sin you need to confess. You may have a pattern in your life that is counter to the gospel that you need to address. It may be God's chastening you. It may be a you may have just gotten your hand cracked. You may have just gotten your hand cracked. I told you don't touch that stove again. It's not God saying, I hate your guts and I'm just going to kill you. It might be God saying, I love you and I want you to stop doing that. So that's the wisdom here is it, it may be a time for self-reflection. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What does God want in my life? What am I not offering? Instead of assuming bad things happen to bad people, I did bad, therefore bad things happen to me. The great news, the gospel is great things happen to bad people. That's the good news, because it's not up to you. And that's where that takes us back to we have confidence to enter the holy place. Don't forget the one sacrifice that was made for you. That ensures God is not ripping your life up. That ensures God is saying, I am going to work in your life. I am going to bring to completion what I've started in you. Godly grief leads to repentance. God may be breeding in you grief to lead you to repentance, but he's not out to destroy you. And so that's the problem with the brothers is they, they just assume that they're toast, that, that God is going to get them. So they go home to uh, Father Jacob, and they tell him the story. This is what happened. Simeon's in jail, and, and this is what's going on now. Wow, this is like magic. I had underlined something in my Bible before I came up here in pencil, and it's gone. <laughs> I guess God didn't want me to say that. He just erased it while I wasn't looking. Um, it was the point that, that Jacob made when he was talking to his sons. Um, he, he's talking with them. Oh, there it is. Thank you, God. Don't, don't erase my Bible, please. Um, it says, in, starting in verse 35, They emptied their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Okay, this is back to that. God's being nice to us. This must be bad. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. What a prophetic statement. 
All he knows is that Joseph is dead, but he looks at his sons and says, you have bereaved me of my children. And didn't he? Or didn't they? They're the ones who sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph is no more and Simeon no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Do you see Jacob himself is still in that hole? He still thinks that God is going to get him. We saw earlier in his life, he was the wheeler dealer. He was the guy who was going to pull all the strings. He was going to cheat Esau out of his birthright. He was going to rip off um, cousin Laban for all his, his sheep. He was the guy who was always shucking and dealing because he thought that was how he was going to get ahead. He's improved, but he's still got that trait in him. All of this has come against me. He doesn't trust Yahweh at this point. He isn't believing God that God has got his best in mind. So Reuben, Reuben is really trying to redeem himself, isn't he? He tried it by he was going to deliver Joseph. And now he says again, Reuben says, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben says, look, dad, I will take responsible, responsibility for Benjamin. I tried to take responsibility for Joseph, but I missed it. When I came back, he was gone. If you put jo uh, Benjamin in my hands, I promise I will take care of him. Reuben is really trying to redeem himself, trying to get back to that, that firstborn position. But Jacob says, my son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. Wait, time out. He's the only one left? you got nine standing right in front of you. What he's talking about here is his beloved uh, Rachel gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, and then she died. So these are his two favorites. Um, again, remember when we talked about that earlier? I said, don't get a T-shirt that says Daddy's Favorites. Don't ever tell your children, that I, this is my favorite child. It just, it just doesn't go well. <laughs> I love you all differently because you're all different people. So that's what's happening is Jacob didn't read Dr. Spock, I guess. And he looks right at his kids and he says, my only child. Dad, what are we? And he said, in the end, he says, if harm should happen to him on his journey that you make, you would bring my gray hair with sorrow to Sheol. I couldn't bear it. Sheol is the place where dead people go. He's not saying, I'm going to go to hell. That's not what Sheol is. Sheol is just where dead people wind up. What he's saying here is, if something happens to Benjamin, even if it's not your fault, if something happens to him, I will go to the grave in sorrow. I can't lose another. I cannot bear to lose another child. I just can't do it. This is Jacob in a state where he still can't trust God. God will get him there. We'll see that next week. God will get him to the point where he can trust. But at this point, God's been working in the brothers, trying to lead them to repentance. And now he's working in Jacob, trying to lead Jacob to repentance. So remember last week I said, when something bad happens, God has a thousand purposes in it. This famine comes and God has a thousand purposes in it. He's doing something different in Judah than he is in Reuben. Who knows what is going on with Simeon? He's in jail. And Jacob is experiencing God's love and his care in a different way. And Joseph is, has experienced, he's gone through all this difficulty, and now he's experiencing God's love in a, in a completely other way, and all because of this famine. So God has just a thousand different things that he's doing here, a thousand different ways that he's working. But what Joseph is doing is assessing his family. What God is doing is disciplining his people. 
He's not forsaking them. He's not crushing them. And so for us, on this side of the cross, because think about this. Joseph's family, his brothers, did not have the sacrificial system that God gave Moses. They didn't have a tabernacle or a temple with the assurance that God's presence would dwell there. What they had was traditions that they'd learned. And so they may offer a sacrifice, but they didn't really know if it was going to work or not. They didn't have the assurance that we have. And yet God was faithful in working in their lives and drawing them to himself. With us, on the other side of the cross, we have that one sacrifice to look back to. But aren't our hearts pretty much the same? Aren't we struggling in pretty much the same way? We just have a greater assurance. We have the fullness of scriptures to remind us, you have boldness to go into the holy place. You don't have to question you can walk right in because God has made a way in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we struggle in our lives, and we, all of us are going to hit hard times. If you're having a great time now, God bless you and, and thank him for that. But when struggle comes, when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, take that time for self-reflection and remember, God is on your side. Jesus has opened a way for you. And this may just be some shaving off that God needs to do, but he's not against you. He's on your side. So as we sang this morning, the Lord will provide. He provided in Jesus Christ. He will provide in the future. Let's pray. Lord, in the new covenant, the covenant made in Jesus' blood, you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, in the new covenant, the covenant in God in Jesus' blood, you have given us the fullness of your revelation. You've writ written the entire scriptures. And they were written to us, is what the New Testament says. So Lord, I pray that in the new covenant, the covenant in Jesus' blood, that we would, as your people, hear and remember the stories that we may not fear. Lord, I pray that we would hear the stories and remember that you are faithful, that you are dedicated to your people, that you will bring about good in their lives. And Lord, I pray that in the new covenant, the covenant in Christ's blood, that we would have boldness to enter into the holy place. Boldness to come running to you and confess our sins. Boldness to ask you to heal our hearts because of one sacrifice. Because Jesus Christ is sitting even this morning, this moment, sitting at your right hand because his sacrifice was accepted. Lord, would you fill our hearts with faith to believe this? and let it shape and inform our lives. In Christ's name, amen.